today's episode, Alternative Modern Horror. Hello, I'm Chris Alvarez, and perhaps you can't tell by looking at me, but I am a nerd. I've been a nerd for many years, and I'm good at it. In this show, I'd like to give you tips on how to be the most successful and well-informed nerd that you can possibly be. I speak with interesting people about cool things. Please join us if you're so inclined. This is Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and welcome. I'm speaking with David Church, author of Post Horror, Art, Genre, and Cultural Elevation, published by Edinburgh University Press, February 28th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, thanks for having me. So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and, and writing a book on it? Well, I've been sort of interested in this recent wave of horror films that seem to have gotten quite a bit of cultural buzz um, and seem to be debated quite a lot by uh, genre fans. Mm. So lots of fans are saying, oh, there's this new wave of, of films that are seemingly above uh, above the fray as far as kind of standing uh, outside the norm of, of the horror genre. Films that seem to be a little more in sort of the art cinema mode. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those films have gotten a lot more um, kind of mainstream and also highbrow critical buzz. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, some fans have become increasingly skeptical about some of the ways that those skeptical about some of the ways that um, highbrow critics have tried to reclaim these films as mm-hmm. simply better than the average horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was first I was first brought to this topic by. Uh, the film It Follows, mm-hmm. um, which forms one of the chapters in this book. Okay. Um, I was kind of blown away by it when I first saw it in 2016, I guess. And um, I went back and saw it over and over and thought, oh, something is, is really happening here. And around that same time was also when The Witch was released and a few other films. Mm-hmm. And so um, there started to be a noticeable trend as far as a number of these films that seem to be a little more slow and minimalistic and ambiguous really seem to be more in sort of the art cinema mode, but doing something with the horror genre nonetheless that seemed to be um, kind of striking. Mm-hmm. So tell me then, um, so actually I wanted to step back for just a moment. And, and so when did you originally get into studying horror? I guess, were you a fan when you were young and you just stuck with it? Yeah, yeah, I've always been a horror fan ever since I was a kid and, and watching the old, you know, 30s universal horror films and, and just kind of moving up from there. Mm-hmm. Um, horror was not something that was really um, welcome in my household. My parents really have no interest in the genre and always kind of look down their nose at it. Mm-hmm. And so I would always have to sort of go elsewhere to find it to kind of satisfy my interest in the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would, I've, you know, grew up as a horror fan, and um, once I became uh, an undergrad and, and went to college, I suddenly realized that, oh, there's this actual, you know, you can actually study horror films, yeah. and there's this body of, of literature out there where people are actually taking these films seriously, mm-hmm. including films that, you know, to hear my parents talk about them would be, you know, seemingly beneath contempt. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so the idea that you could actually, you know, take these films seriously and, and actually develop a, a serious body of research about them is something that I've always been uh, fascinated by. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going into to further studies myself on to the master's and PhD, um, 
I've always been fascinated in, in lowbrow genres of various types. So mm -hmm. not just horror films, but also exploitation films, adult films, basically any sort of genre that tends to be written off by society at large mm -hmm. or seen as not really worthy of being remembered. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always interested in like how these films, especially older films, are you know, recirculated and, and how they're still framed as important in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but this book was a little bit of a de departure because it wasn't so much about you know, older films being recirculated on home video or, or things like that. It was about, you know, recent films that were uh, coming out over a short span of years. So mm -hmm. um, it was a, a little more, little more focused as far as the time period I was looking at. So what time period are you looking at in the book? So primarily uh, 2013 is when, 2013 and 2014 is when the first of these films start to come out. Mm -hmm. You start to have some films like uh, Under the Skin, uh, the, the Babadook and Goodnight Mommy. Those are three that start to get this critical conversation sort of forming gradually around them. And then the year after that, you have um, It Follows and The Witch, which, you know, kind of jumped from uh, from the art house circuit, or, or rather they, they jumped from the, the festivals straight into multiplexes, which was something a little different than what happened with The Babadook and, and Goodnight Mommy, because those were still, you know, they went from festivals into the art houses, but they didn't really get the mainstream visibility, at least until they sort of moved to, you know, Netflix and streaming platforms a couple years down the road. Mm -hmm. But there was much of much more of a straight line from the festival premieres to the multiplex for It Follows and The Witch and The Black Coat's Daughter and a couple of other films that came out right around 2014, 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. And so that struck me as interesting because all of a sudden these films which might have otherwise been seen as too sort of arty uh to be crossing over to the multiplex are now starting to get in front of much broader audiences mm -hmm. and that's why i think they've been sort of some of them have been pretty divisive as far as their overall reception mm -hmm. uh, so you know genre fans and and professional film critics will tend to love these films but then uh, if you look at like rotten tomato scores and the, okay. the more sort of like, I guess you could say casual fans of horror, they come into these films thinking, oh, okay, this is playing at the multiplex, you know, this buzz, I'm going to go see it. And then they they are kind of shocked or startled that it's, you know, you're not getting a whole bunch of jump scares. They're usually kind of slow, uh, disturbing, they're ambiguous, they don't necessarily spoon feed you all the narrative information that you might be expecting. So they're, they're really sort of making viewers work harder than they might expect to have to work. Uh, if they're mm -hmm. just going and expecting it to be like a popcorn horror movie. So were were these films, and you can address all of them, uh, how, how many of them were self-consciously trying to be more, you know, elevate themselves in which were just, hey, we're just trying to make different kinds of horror, new kinds of horror? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. I, I think a lot of them, the the filmmakers were either first-time filmmakers or second-time filmmakers, they were trying to sort of, you know, make a name for themselves and coming out of art schools or having a lot of inspiration themselves from sort of like the, the art house tradition. Um, you know, filmmakers like Bergman or Tarkovsky or uh, Antonioni or whoever. And so, um, you know, these filmmakers, I think, deliberately did want to elevate their material. Lots of them said, well, I was a horror fan and being able to to do this sort of of uh, you know heavily stylized and aestheticized treatment of horror was one way of, of making a name for myself and being able to get 
sort of a foothold in the industry to then make other sorts of films. Mm -hmm. So if you look at somebody like Robert Eggers or Ari Aster um, with The Witch and, and Hereditary, those were their, their first feature films. Mm -hmm. But they were both, you know, very, very trained in film history and, and have a lot of highbrow influences. And they sort of said, well, these were my way of, of you know, making a name for myself when I was crossing over, you know, into the film world in, in, in a more substantial way. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it might have just been, you know, we're doing something a little bit different. Um, we're getting away from maybe some of the, the over-reliance on jump scares or the over-reliance on, you know, gore and shock effect and things like that. As one thing that I mentioned in the book is that if you look at the, the longer history of the horror genre, at least in the U.S., it tends to have sort of like a, it's sort of a swinging pendulum where it'll move in a more sort of like graphic gory shock oriented direction which we kind of saw with like the torture porn films from you know the immediate post 9-11 era mm -hmm. and then gradually there's been this move back toward um the kind of paranormal ghost films more gothic films that are a little more atmospheric and suggestive and not so much focused on like you know blood and gore and guts and things like that mm -hmm. um, so this seems to be a little more of like moving in that direction of visual restraint at least for some of them so, and this might be a question outside, beyond the scope of your book, but um, have you seen, has that, how, how is the streaming, how has that influenced sort of the approach to either horror films or horror shows or series? Um, I think streaming has definitely opened up a lot of new avenues um, for some of these films. So some of the, the films that I'm writing about in this particular book um, gained a much broader audience when they went to streaming. Um, so something like The Babadook um, hadn't been seen by a huge number of people before it landed on Netflix, but once it landed on Netflix and was sort of humorously miscategorized as an LGBTQ film, it sort of gained this, this sort of semi-ironic uh, cult reputation where all these people were saying, oh, The Babadook is now a queer icon or something like that. Um, so, you know, all these different ways that when these films move to streaming and, and get a broader audience, they can be taken up and gain sort of an, an interesting, different life of their own. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think with the broader horror genre, one of the things that's been really interesting with the rise of streaming services is the rise of, like, um, anthology horror films. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this idea that you, ha you have a, a film that's feature length, but it contains a number of bite-sized little mini films, basically, in it. Um, little mini segmented bite-sized chunks of narrative it's it's almost a, a, a form of horror film that's that's really made very well for for streaming because you can just sort of dip in or dip out and you know watch a little piece here a little piece there um, it, it it's you know an interesting spin on what you might see with like the longer uh, more serialized forms of, of horror that we see coming to streaming services as well like the haunt from the hill house or, or things of that nature I'm speaking with David Church, author of Post Horror. You can find more information about his work at david-church.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. 
If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So give me some examples of what you were talking about, the the stuff that you can dip in and out of. A film like XX, um, all all women-led anthology film, that would be an interesting example. Mm -hmm. So a film where it's, you know, framed in such a way where we're getting together a bunch of filmmakers, in this case they're all women, and they all have their own... um, their own stories and we're basically bringing it all together under this feature length umbrella basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all kind of following that, the same sort of like uh, format as a, well, a movie like creep show or something like that, where there might be a little bit of a, a framing narrative in some way. And then they branch off into a little individual stories and it might come back to the framing narrative at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, also movies like uh, the VHS series. Um, that's something that, you know, over the last 10 years or so uh, made use of this sort of anthologized, format as well and this question is i'm sure outside the scope of your book but you might have thoughts on it um has this influenced horror video games at all do you know because there's you know video games have become so cinematic in in a sense you know that's a good question because i don't focus too much on horror video games myself Mm -hmm. um i know that there are certain video games that seem to be moving a little more in the direction of generating some of the the dread Mm-hmm. that you might associate with some of the post-horror films. Mm-hmm. So like the, um, I can't remember what the name of it is. It's the, the alien uh, video game where you basically have to run and hide from the alien mm-hmm. um, at different points. Um, that one strikes me as maybe doing something similar to, to some of these films as far as you know, there's a monster on the loose, but you hardly ever see it. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know, there's this constant sense of dread. Mm-hmm. It's not so much about the blood and guts and gore and all that kind of stuff, but it's about you know, constantly making you feel this sense of tension. Mm-hmm. What about, um, do these films, I don't want to ask if, they, or I don't want to say they have lower production values, but are they cheaper because they don't have as much special effects or visual, you know, if it's more about the story and feel and atmosphere? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the number of these films are, lower budgeted they are not necessarily coming from from the major studios or having major studios distribute them right so a lot of these films were produced by like i mentioned first time or second time filmmakers um they have more of an indie ethos behind them and that might help to explain why they tend to get picked up by distributors like a24 because you know a little more of a an artsy uh kind of cultural cachet to it mm-hmm. um and at the same time though i think because they aren't aren't necessarily relying on a lot of big actors or um, lots of sets and, you know, CGI and special effects and all those things that might potentially, you know, amp up the the budgets in a way that a major studio film might. Mm -hmm. I think it, I think you do see that reflected to some degree within the films themselves. So a lot of the films will be set in a very limited number of locations. So they might be in these very claustrophobically gothic interiors um, and dealing with family issues like, um, unexpected loss, um, you know, traumatic loss of a family member, especially a parent or child, seems to be a recurring motif in a lot of these films mm-hmm. as a way of setting up whatever supernatural or possibly supernatural events happen as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it makes sense that if you're 
if you have at your disposal a limited number of sets, a limited number of actors, you're going to pare down the story into something that seems to be more, something that seems, you know, easier to deal with. Mm. And getting down onto that sort of like intimate human level, you're focusing much more on on the, the character's psychology and really developing the characters rather than just delivering one scare after another. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I've noticed that with sci-fi films, you know, these sort of indie popular ones that are more like maybe pared down in a sense and more focused on the, um, the feelings and the atmosphere. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering if there's some parallel, you know, some, some timeline, something within recent film history that suggests why both genres have been doing that. Um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's, Partly the fact that the, the major studios have sort of like moved out from these indie divisions that they had uh, around kind of the turn of the century, hmm. um, where you know a lot of them were sort of like these indie wood divisions, like Fox Searchlight and things like that. Well, I guess Fox Searchlight is still around, but um, a lot of the major studios had their own little indie distribution arms, and they gradually sort of retracted from that. Um, most of those indie distribution arms under the major studios have have folded. Um, and so now it's gone back to these smaller distributors, um, like A24, people who are sort of outside the studio system, who are the ones getting a lot of these projects off the ground. Mm. And so I, I think it probably makes sense that then, as a result of that, you have any genre, whether that be sci-fi or horror, um, having to deal with smaller budgets and less access and, you know, maybe trying to carve out more of a, a niche for themselves through the art house market. Um, but of course, if they can take a film that seems very art house in style and then parlay that into getting some sort of a, a wider release in multiplexes, that seems to be something that um, some of the sci-fi and horror films have been able to do uh, in recent years. Hmm. So how uh, we've touched a little bit on, on how the books, what the book has in it. Can you talk about how it's laid out? Um, how you break it break it down? Sure, yeah. So the book begins by kind of looking at what this overall corpus is. Like, what is the body of films that I'm looking at? What are some of the general stylistic traits that they have? Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at how they tend to generate this affect of dread. Um, and they tend to be very ambiguous. They tend to be slow-paced. Um, the way that they're filmed, there's not a whole lot of, really like frenetic editing and cinematography there's a lot of like kind of cold distance from what we're watching in a lot of these films so they can feel sort of off-putting when you're watching them potentially um and yet at the same time they are often dealing with these themes around trauma or gaslighting and 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 so on that uh can strike people on really a sort of a a deep personal level as well so in the first chapter i'm basically trying to figure out okay what are these films? I'm trying to, to, to delimit a sort of working group of, of films that I'm talking about. And then in the second chapter, I'm dealing more with what are some of the historical influences uh, on these films from the horror genre. So looking at precursors like um, The Shining or Rosemary's Baby or Don't Look Now and using that as a way into trying to discuss how um, film critics have have attempted or made multiple attempts to name these films, to sort of um, name them as some sort of cycle or subgenre or find some way of like marking them off as different than the average horror film. Mm. So using terms like calling them indie horror 
example, slow horror or smart horror or elevated horror or post-horror. Like these are all attempts to in some way say, okay, these are different than your average Hollywood-style horror film. But one of the things that I do in that second chapter is basically say, okay, here are the reasons why these types of critical terms might have been applied to label these films. But then here are the reasons why those labels are ultimately flawed. And what I'm trying to sort of argue there is that the reason why there were so many successive attempts to try to label these films as something other than just straightforward horror was because critics were trying to name the sort of affect that these films had. In other words, this kind of ambiguous sense of feeling or sensation that the films could produce, which was oftentimes this kind of lingering sense of dread. Um, and so critics were trying to, in some way, find some name that would encompass the feeling of these films. And of course, the feeling being partly generated by the style that the films have, this very minimalistic style. And so after that second chapter, where I'm basically looking at the critical debates um, between you know, high-minded film critics and, and genre fans and so on over the, the ap applicability of these different terms, then the rest of the chapters basically start to look at the different themes in the films. So the third chapter is looking at themes around trauma um, and using films like Hereditary, uh, The Babadook, Goodnight Mommy, and looking at basically, you know, themes around the family and anxieties about family influences, and especially influences that sort of jump a generation. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I'm trying to argue is that, in a sense, that's kind of what has happened with these films themselves. Like, we have this kind of influence from this older generation of art horror films and art films in, in general that has sort of skipped a generation and and suddenly inhabited this this upcoming group of films. Okay. And then um, from there, I sort of developed themes around uh, gaslighting, uh, uh, gaslighting as one of the reasons why these films can be so sort of disturbing to a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, and looking at different ways that gaslighting can play out, uh, whether that be in sort of gendered terms with films like uh, Midsommar or, or uh, The Invitation, or in racial terms with a film like Get Out. And then from there, I, I move into a couple of chapters about uh, landscape. And so I look at the influence of films like The Shining um, and even films like There Will Be Blood, which might not seem like a horror film, but it is sort of horrific in its own way. And looking at those as potential ways into thinking about how there's a lot of like very sparse, wild landscapes, almost sublime landscapes uh, in a lot of these films. Um, you don't have quite as much of, well, in some cases you have a, as I mentioned before, the, the kind of claustrophobic gothic interiors with the films around loss. But then some of the other films are about these wide open spaces. Um, so like horrors around the forest uh, in films like The Witch or Hagazusa or um, around the ocean in films like The Lighthouse. And then gradually I, I apply similar sorts of, of arguments to something like uh, It Follows and look at how you have this kind of sparse, depopulated, deindustrialized setting of Detroit mm -hmm. um, as an urban setting, but is also allowing for this sort of, of dread over what exactly is, is working there. Mm -hmm. And then I finally um, end the book by looking at, at more, I guess you could say, sort of spiritual or philosophical issues around um, characters who are trying to find some sort of, you know, transcendence above the human. So whether that's turning to spirituality or turning to the occult or turning to something that sort of gets beyond um, hmm. beyond the sort of everyday um, human existence. So kind of existential themes yeah. in these films. How many of uh, of these that you'll look at 
are also sci-fi and how many are, are any of them sort of historic, you know, set in some historical period? Not many of them are sci-fi. I tried to sort of make them pretty squarely about horror films, mm. although there are a couple examples where you sort of like toe pretty close to that line. So something like Under the Skin, mm. where, you know, you, you have an extraterrestrial on Earth harvesting meat to, to you know, send back off world. Mm. Um, but it, it plays out very much like a horror film, mm. like a body horror film in particular. Mm. So, um, you know, I didn't focus too much on some of the, the more sort of understated artsy sci-fi films that have been coming out around the same period of time. Mm. And as to the other part of the question, um, a few of them are, uh, a few of them have, have historical settings, mm-hmm. um, but most of them are pretty contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robert Eggers' films are historical because he loves his historical verisimilitude. He loves you know, creating very period accurate um, sets and settings with films like The Witch or The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, you might also look at something like, uh, like the film Under the Shadow, which is a, an interesting look back at the uh, Iran-Iraq War in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And that one tends to be, you know, that, that one's set in a, a very realistic uh, historical setting as well, although certainly not as far back as, you know, something like The Witch. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a grab bag. A lot of them are pretty contemporary, though, as far as their setting. What countries are, are these films from? Uh, most of them are from the U.S., but there are some from, uh, from the U.K., from Canada, um, from Australia, but um, by and large, I'm, I'm looking mostly at the Anglo-American films. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few from like France also, but uh, yeah, by and large, it's it's been an American trend. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you've already touched on this in your answers, but the the cultural the part of your title, your book title, the cultural part, um, is that part of what you've just been saying, or is there more that you haven't touched on yet? Well, the, the idea of cultural elevation in the title is really this idea that these films have somehow been described by critics as elevated above, you know, the, the average. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're somehow seen as doing something a little more reputable than your typical horror film. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there are more, therefore, there are easier horror films to take seriously. Since, mm-hmm. after all, most professional film critics, not all, but many, uh, tend to have sort of a skepticism about the horror genre. They tend to look down their nose at it. Mm-hmm. And um, these films, though, seem to be more easily reclaimable as, like, safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, they're, they're aesthetically seemingly a cut above. And so, as a result of that, um, critics have sort of, like, played up the value of these films, potentially at, at the expense of the genre as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that you see genre fans very often do when they're trying to poke holes in all these labels like elevated horror or post-horror and try to point out how all these labels are flawed, mm-hmm. is that they'll very often say, well, yes, that's all fine and good to say that, okay, there are a handful of, of like reputable horror films that we can somehow elevate above the fray, mm-hmm. but there's always been value in the horror genre mm-hmm. um, because as more of a sociological entity, horror has always been about addressing what society has repressed in some way, hasn't wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. to some degree, genre fans will, will make this, this counter-argument and say, well, the horror genre doesn't need defending. It's always had value. It's just been seen as a disreputable genre because it delves into all of these themes that our society maybe doesn't want to address um, 
you know, without framing them in terms of being like about monsters and things like that. Right. So um, when someone says highbrow, I usually think of things that are connected to some kind of literary basis or literary foundation, you know, films that are, you know, connected to say, you know, Pride and Prejudice or something, you know, it's a film about a book every, you know, that's, that's renowned. And then I'm thinking a lot of horror has been, uh, a lot of horror films have been made out of Stephen King's works, you know, that's based on books and, you know, and some of them are, are sort of lowbrow, some more highbrow. Um, so I'm just curious about the connection of these modern films to any literary um, foundations. Uh, a lot of these films that I'm looking at here aren't necessarily adapted from any existing literary source material. Mm -hmm. Some of them might have some influence. Uh, so like Robert Eggers draws influence from, say, Herman Melville when he's making a movie like The Lighthouse mm -hmm. uh, or from the novels of Sarah, Jor Sarah Orne Jewett. Um, but, um, you know, in general, these aren't necessarily adaptations of like highbrow literary source material, the way that you might have with like a, um, sort of prestige horror movie, like Bram Stoker's Dracula hmm. or something like that. These films seem to be coming from somewhere else. They don't necessarily have that existing frame of reference for viewers. Hmm. So that I think is another reason why they've been a little more controversial or a little more divisive. Now, if you're going to see a new adaptation of Pride and Prejudice or Dracula or Frankenstein or something like that, you have a good idea what you're getting into on some level. Yeah. But if you're going to see something like, you know, It Follows or The Witch, um, where you're expecting there to be, you know, something that's a little more more generic there, mm -hmm. and yet that, that kind of generic monster isn't really delivered to you, in the way that you expect, mm. it can leave people feeling kind of frustrated. Some people can feel sort of cheated. Why Why did I just sit through this two-hour-long movie about people moping around, acting depressed, if, you know, I'm not getting a bunch of scares at the end of the day? Right. I'm speaking with David Church, author of Post Horror. You can find more information about his work at david-church.com. If you like this episode of Full Contact Nerd Interviews so far, please tap the like button and hit the subscribe button. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. How many of these, the films in general, have monsters versus have some other kind of dangerous element or, you know, horror element? Well, it's interesting because a lot of these films, if they do have monsters, the monster is depicted in a kind of indirect way. Mm -hmm. We might only see like little fleeting glimpses of it. So in a movie like It Follows, for example, you get the fleeting glimpses of the monster, you know, gradually marching toward the camera. But 
it's not really dwelt upon that much. Um, even in a movie like uh, Hereditary, which is a little more sort of overtly supernatural, um, you know, you, you do get some images of ghostly things happening, like the mother levitating and floating around and <laughs> doing all sorts of, of spooky things. Mm -hmm. But it's not as front and center as it might be with, you know, a movie where you have the monster just on screen for long periods of time chasing characters around, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, in some cases, though, there's a lot of hesitation in these films over, like, who the true monster is or if something supernatural really is happening. Mm -hmm. So in something like Get Out or in Midsommar, um, these films around, like, gaslighting themes, there's this question of, well, something seems off to the main character. Like, something's not right in these circumstances, and I can't quite put my finger on it, and no one believes me that something is off, mm -hmm. and I'm not really sure who to trust, and yet something monstrous does happen, but it's not monstrous in sort of a supernatural way. It's mm -hmm. monstrous things that people are doing because of these belief systems that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and likewise, you find that with the themes, or with the films that are themed around trauma. So lots of times, films with traumatized characters you know, they are having these sort of delusions and breaks from reality, and they're not really sure, you know, the, the home that they've lived in no longer feels like home to them. It feels like a strange, uncanny place. Um, and they feel haunted by someone who, you know, used to be part of their life, but is no longer there. And so you get all these, these things that might or might not be supernatural, but you're never really sure exactly whether it's within that person's head or whether there's something supernatural actually going on. And some of these films never really land squarely on one side of that line or another some of them um just seem to kind of keep that that hesitation going and never answer the question and kind of leave things totally ambiguous about whether something is is you know truly supernaturally afoot mm -hmm. um, and as a result of that then that's yet another reason why some of these films might feel disappointing for viewers like you, if you can never figure out like mm -hmm. oh was there really a ghost or not it's kind of like you know, the, the turn of the screw or something like that. You know, you can read it different ways. Was the person crazy? Was there a ghost? How do we know? You know, it could be read multiple ways. Yeah. So considering these films came out, have been coming out um, for 10 years or more after the U.S. has been in war, you know, war against terrorism and you have returning veterans and all that, do any of the films, in some of what you mentioned, maybe you answered this already, but how much are they influenced by the experiences of veterans in the country in terms of terrorism and all that, and the war, mm. the wars? You know, strangely, I think a lot of these films are not really engaging directly with the war on terror or with the legacy of that. Mm -hmm. um, there are some exceptions, like uh, Under the Shadow, uh, which is really, you know, about Middle Eastern wars, but framed from people living in the Middle East, people living in Tehran, but back in the 80s, rather than, you know, post 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see most of these films as dealing specifically with the legacy of 9-11 of or the war on terror or domestic terrorism or things of that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, they seem to be almost a turn away from some of those themes that had been pretty prominent in the horror genre post 9-11. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, the, the so-called torture porn films that started to come out around 2004, 2005, movies like Saw and Hostel and, and Turistas, and you know, movies where it was about um, Americans traveling abroad and becoming captured and tortured, or, you know, questions of 
you know, someone randomly capturing you and torturing you or, you know, doing terrible things to you. And that being seen as like a reflection of, of what was just sort of like floating around in the culture at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I didn't really see there being very much of that in these films. Mm -hmm. Maybe the closest would be something like Goodnight Mommy, mm -hmm. where in the last third of that film, uh, one of the, the, uh, the children ties up his mother and begins to torture her. But that's really sort of, I think, a kind of a transitional film. Hmm. Um, it's one of the earliest of these post-horror films, and most of the other films that I'm looking at here don't have long scenes of characters being in captivity or being tortured or anything like that. Um, it's really about things that are happening in their own head. And I ask because I've done some interviews um, with academics about Latin American horror, how that deals with sort of the politics of, you know, totalitarian regimes and students being kidnapped and tortured and kept, you know, imprisoned, you know, it seems to reflect that. And I'm just curious if any of that is seen in, in U.S. horror. Uh, you know. I think because the context here, we don't necessarily have that floating around to the same degree that we do with, you know, Latin American horror films uh it's just not going to come up in the genre mm -hmm. as much you know, it's not going to be reflected as much in the genre as it might be in films coming from latin america mm -hmm. okay um so tell me how you did the research for this book i assume you looked at watched the movies and and is it just sort of stuff you 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 um your own experiences and understanding or was there more well part of it was my own experience and my own little mini readings of the films like mm. things that I thought were interesting ways that certain themes came up again and again, or maybe in interconnected with certain larger um, political issues, gaslighting and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and how that can be read on like a larger cultural scale, um, especially during the Trump years, for example, beyond my own little readings of the films, mm. I did a lot of research into the reception of the films themselves. Mm. So looking at how film critics and genre fans talked about them, and basically looking at the discourse around them. That was a really important factor. Because that way it wasn't only coming from my own personal readings of the films, my own interpretations, but I could engage with this larger conversation around the films and, and try to put more of a finger on why, even if I like the films a lot, why other people might have not liked them quite as much. Right. Or why they might have rated them, you know, much lower than, say... Um, you know, kind of a, a guaranteed crowd pleaser like the It movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does that, so who or what critics um, were you reading from? Like, was it online reviews and, you know, official newspaper reviews or uh, what would you choose from? Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at um, a variety of stuff from, you know, kind of reputable uh, cultural arbiters of taste, New mm -hmm. York Times, The New Yorker, Richard Brody from The New Yorker was somebody whose name came up many times uh, over the course of this. Mm -hmm. um, also from The Guardian, uh, so this guy Steve Rose, who's a columnist for The Guardian in the UK, is the one who coined this term post-horror to begin with. And so looking at you know both American and British film critics, mm -hmm. but then also American and British fans. Mm -hmm. And so looking at like um, magazines like Diabolique, or websites like Rue Morgue, or, or, you know, even Reddit, and basically looking at, okay, where are actual horror fans discussing these films amongst themselves, and how might their opinions differ from someone like Richard Brody, who's 
saying things like, oh, well, you know, genre is sort of irrelevant. It, it you know, if you have material that's treated uh, in a sort of elevated way by a talented filmmaker, it doesn't really matter what genre it's from, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. What, um, what did, well, what part of the research did you find most enjoyable? I mean, I assume you, you enjoy watching the movies, but, but did it get to the point where you had to watch them over and over to the point where you were like, all right, I, enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At some point, especially when I was writing about, um, oh, some of the, like the post-apocalyptic movies, um, like right around the time that the, the COVID lockdown was starting, you know, watching movies over and over, like it comes at night mm -hmm. where, you know, you have all these people locked inside because there's mysterious viruses out there and of course you know uh all these kind of like cabin fever type uh mm. <laughs> themes coming up again and again in the film that that was not terribly fun mm. um but i liked reading up on a lot of stuff about the occult which mm. was something that i hadn't expected to kind of go in the direction of before mm. um but some of the films like hereditary and especially um this one called a dark song are pretty pretty interesting as far as the references to the occult mm. that they are are making use of and even something like a dark song i had to go in and read a bunch of these old medieval grimoires like you know mm. how to cast spells and how to perform these months long occult workings these long operations mm. and try to parse out okay you know what has been fictionalized for the film and what is actually you know true to to supposedly what one can do with the occult and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So that was interesting just because I hadn't really, uh, you know, dipped my toes into some of that literature very much. Mm -hmm. What did you come across that most surprised you and nothing pops up? This is sort of like, you know, that psychological test, like what's the first thing you think of when right, you see right. this picture? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things that, that struck me was just how stark of a divide there might be for some people watching these films in terms of, how some critics just absolutely adored them and then how audiences absolutely hated them. Mm -hmm. So when I would actually go to watch some of these movies, especially in the theater, I was sometimes surprised by the number of walkouts mm -hmm. that there were, um, which is something that you tend not to see in a lot of, you know, more mainstream horror films, I guess. People are there for the entertainment value yeah. and the fact that people were, were being pissed off by these films or being bored or being frustrated and getting up and leaving. And sometimes I, I saw a couple of cases of people shouting at the screen as they were on their way out <laughs> uh, with movies like Mother, for example, which is, you know, it's a movie trashing religion. So you're probably going to get that response from some people at least. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, you know, just seeing how stark the divide was over people's opinions on some of these films was, I, I thought something that was endlessly fascinating and something that kept me coming back to them. Because again, my opinions on most of these films were, were pretty high to begin with. I really mm. like these films, at least most of them. Yeah. Um, but then seeing just like why a lot of other people absolutely hated them uh, was really fascinating. Have you seen or do you expect to see sort of copycat, big studio copycats of any of these films? Uh, you know, it's interesting because there have been some attempts on the publicity circuit for major studio films to try to label these as elevated horror films or post-horror films, even if stylistically they aren't really doing that. Hmm. So, for example, when the remake of Pet Cemetery came out uh, a year or two ago, I guess two years ago now, hmm. um, the filmmakers were out on the publicity circuit saying, oh, yeah, we, we wanted to make this elevated horror film. So they're 
you know, using the same critical language to try to make it uh. seem like their film is a, you know, a cut above the rest, trying to like, you know, raise it up in in the public's esteem. Mm-hmm. But then when people actually went and saw the movie, they were like, oh, this is just your very typical generic movie filled with yeah. jump scares. It's a you know, very predictable Stephen King movie. And of course, people knew what they were getting into because you know, most people knew the story of Pet Cemetery going in. Mm-hmm. So that was a case where um, these attempts by the filmmakers to kind of preemptively label it as a quote-unquote elevated horror film or post-horror film really flopped mm-hmm. um, just because the material itself wasn't stylistically elevated. It wasn't as minimalistic. It wasn't as disturbing. It wasn't as you know, mm. austere as what you see with some of the, I guess you would call actual elevated horror films. So, so it sounds like they were really, they just made a movie to please the standard crowd. But yeah, as you said, using the language to maybe draw in the, the more sophisticated crowd, so to speak. Yeah. And failing. Yeah. Huh. That's and you can also see something similar with a movie like, um, like Us, Jordan mm. Peele's Us. Mm. That's a movie where you know, when he put out Get Out, he initially said, well, Get Out isn't a horror film. Get Out is a, a social thriller. We described it as a social thriller instead of a horror film, at mm-hmm. least at first. Mm-hmm. And then later on, he said, well, no, Get Out is actually a documentary because it was seemingly so close to the truth of of uh, Black people's experience. Mm-hmm. But then when Us came around, you know, his, his follow-up film, he flat out said, like, Us is a horror film. Mm. It's it's not a, you know, not a thriller. It's not this, not that. There was no, like, you know, no mincing of words mm. about things. He just flat out said, it's a horror film. Mm. So it was like he was trying to make a, a corrective from how he had earlier characterized Get Out as a social thriller or as something mm. else. Okay. Um, but what was kind of interesting there is that, you know, some people went in and, and saw us and were a little disappointed by it, or at least disappointed by it compared to Get Out. They didn't think of it quite measured up mm. in the same way. They thought it was maybe tonally a little all over the place. It was maybe mashing together too much, you know, Twilight Zone influence with too much um, kind of comedy and, and too much of this, that, and the other, and didn't really all like come together for them. It didn't feel like as coherent of a film as Get Out did. And so that would be a case where some people even said, well, Peel was under so much pressure from having made, you know, this landmark film before this, you know, how are you going to follow that up? And maybe he was under so much pressure to make something that was seemingly elevated mm-hmm. that there were almost too many, that there were too heavy of critical expectations put on him for that sophomore film of his. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's interesting how, how you have critics debate these films and come up with terms and then studio publicists and marketing start to co-op them for their own purposes and mm-hmm. it's just kind of fascinating watching that that happen um, yeah yeah and, and then of course when fans intervene mm-hmm. and try to say like well i'm actually going to call it this or i absolutely refuse to call it a elevated horror film i'm just going to call it a horror film or, or something like that mm-hmm. um I think fans love to argue, fans of any any genre, and mm-hmm. just giving them more excuses to argue about something, I think just, yes, they, they, they get mad and annoyed, but I think it also is exciting for them to keep it going. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, and that I think is, is one of the things that has 
uh, really fascinated me about this body of films is that they've generated so much discussion, not just among critics, but also fans. And there's been this kind of maelstrom of, of discussion around them yeah. over people debating, like, are the films worthy of all this buzz? Should they just be seen as part of the larger genre? Should they be seen as somehow, like, actually art house dramas instead of horror films? Like, you know, people are, are constantly debating uh, the merits of these films, and a lot of it comes back to the labels that get applied to them in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really like this this quote that uh, the critic Matt Zoller cites, mm -hmm. uh, posted on, on Twitter. He says, um, Elevated horror is like an artisanal cheeseburger. Make the goddamn cheeseburger. If it's delicious, no one will care what adjective you put in front of it. <laughs> so, you know, certainly some film critics are saying, like, if it's a quality product, it doesn't matter, like, what you call it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's going to find its audience one way or another. Mm -hmm. Did you come across any horror films that were made sort of, uh, I guess this would definitely be experimental or, or art house where they, they deliberately were trying to frustrate the audience where they, they were like, here's my horror and you're going to hate it, but I don't mm -hmm. care because, you know, it does what I want to do. It's subversive or something like that. Right. Uh, I think some of the films that A24 has put out mm -hmm. have been marketed as if they were horror films, but then they end up being something very different when you actually go see them. So something like a ghost story mm -hmm. is much more about like you know, wandering across this, you know, cosmic, you know, cosmic fields across time and space and about grief and, and, and mourning and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's like very, very little that actually resembles a horror film in it. Hmm. Um, even down to the, the monster himself as, you know, just this guy underneath a white sheet for the, you know, the whole film. Uh -huh. um, but in some cases, I think a movie like Darren Aronofsky's Mother was deliberately made to be sort of rebuked to the audience. Hmm. You know, you had a major star, Jennifer Lawrence, and, you know, other, you know, big name stars, Javier Bardem, uh, Ed Harris, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, big names in it. Um, and yet it's a film that is a, a very thinly veiled allusion to, you know, the Bible, to Genesis and, and the Gospels, and is at the same time um, trying to be a, an attack on Judeo-Christian beliefs. Mm -hmm. So a film like that that's deliberately trying to be, I mean, it's deliberately trying to be obscure, but at the same time being so blatant as far as trying to kind of like poke people in the eye. <laughs> As mm. far as, you know, attacking their religious beliefs. Mm. Um, that, I think, is one of the few where it was pretty deliberate on the filmmaker's part to make something that was going to be hated by a large chunk of the audience. Mm. Was there a, did you come across any issue uh, or anything within the research for this book that was particularly difficult for you to get an answer to? And either you did figure it out or you're like, I still wish I understood X mm. or Y. That's a good question. I mean, at some point, I kind of had to draw a line in the sand and say, like, I can't come to any, like, final judgments about these films, because I think the cycle is still ongoing mm. at the moment. We have movies like um, uh, Amulet, or She Dies Tomorrow, or um, St. Maud, um, still coming out as of this past year. And so I wasn't able to fit them into the book. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions that I'm still left with is how much longer is this cycle going to go? Is this going to be a continuing trend in the genre? Is it something that's going to sort of like burn itself out? 
by you know roughly the decade mark, which I guess would be coming up in a couple years, mm-hmm. um, or is it you know something that's just going to be sort of like a, a perennial thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, you know, I, I had to at some point just kind of step back from the project and say I can go no further here. I need to need to just basically say here's where things are at as of this time of writing, and I don't know exactly where things are going to go five years from now, ten years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were writing a follow-up book to this, I would, I'm sure, have a, a longer, you know, I would have more uh, historical perspective to be able to say, like, okay, here's where this cluster of films fits into the wider genre. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, simply not at that point yet. Was there, what, I forget that, that Korean film, that Korean horror that got all this buzz a couple years ago. Um, I'm totally blanking on the title. I don't know if, if you included um, it in, in your study. Which one was that? Was it Train to Busan? No, it was, or, what was it about? I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was a horror film. Um, this Korean one that everyone was like, wow, this is totally different. And I mean, it got so much buzz. I, I'm pretty yeah. sure it was a horror movie. It was uh, Parasite. Oh, Parasite. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Did, um, no, I, I didn't focus on Parasite in here. Um, I felt like it was almost a little too too far away from a horror film, although it certainly does have horror elements in it, yeah. in its last act. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, that was a random thought there. Um, was there, and maybe this research, probably this research doesn't lend itself to this question, but did you have, was there anything that had a strong emotional impact that you came across, either positively or negatively? You know, I, I think the circumstances of just seeing a few of these films at the moment when I was watching them mm. had kind of an unexpected impact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, watching, as I mentioned before, uh, watching It Comes at Night multiple times right after the COVID lockdown had started mm-hmm. and thinking, okay, that's ironic, but, uh, you know, an interesting coincidence, if nothing else, but mm-hmm. nonetheless sort of made it that much more more difficult to sit through mm-hmm. uh, in some sense, uh, but more relevant to sit through. Mm-hmm. Or even something like Midsommar. So, Right at the time that Midsommar came out in early July of 2019, I guess it was, um, I had just accepted a job to move from from Arizona out to Indiana. Mm. And so this was a very rushed move. And so, you know, I just felt like I was uprooting myself at the last minute and having to relocate myself completely um, over the course of about a month. And so... You know, that was a very distressing movie to watch just because I was feeling very distressed at the time I was watching it. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I think it depends on, on just like who you are and what you're going through at the time that you're watching these movies. Mm. You know, again, these movies are not necessarily horror movies for escapism or horror movies for entertainment's sake. Mm. Um, these are movies that delve into, you know, themes around grief and loss and existential crisis and, and dread and all these different sorts of, of things that are not necessarily fear, but mm-hmm. they're other like negative emotions, negative affects. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you were going through a breakup or if you were in the midst of a bad relationship and going to see a movie like Midsommar, that might be a tough movie to sit through. Mm-hmm. And again, it might be a very cathartic movie mm-hmm. at the end based upon your own personal response to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a company like A24, when they put out the director's cut of, of Midsommar, they sort of had this tongue-in-cheek contest where they said, hey, um, do you need couples therapy after you watch this film? We will give away this, you know, 
you can win a subscription to three months of couples therapy, mm -hmm. um, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it all just kind of depends. Um, you know, watching a movie like Get Out uh, amid um, all of the the racial turmoil, and you know, it obviously being a film that's directly responding to um, to Black Lives Matter and, and everything that we've seen in that regard over the, the last couple of years, mm -hmm. um, that's something that also makes it you know a more difficult watch, or could be a, a much more emotionally draining watch for some people rather than others. Mm -hmm. I know that when I've taught that film before, I've had some people in the class who said, we don't want to watch the original uh, director's cut, the one where the main character, Chris, is not victorious at the end, the one where he goes to jail at the end. Um, and a lot of students said, we, we, you know, we know that that, I mean, that alternate ending exists, we just don't want to see it. We want the more escapist ending, the more upbeat ending, mm -hmm. the one that has some, some shred of optimism at the end rather than the one where he remains basically trapped in the, the prison industrial complex as this alternate version of the sunken place mm -hmm. um but mm -hmm. nonetheless you know i think to to be able to to talk about what it means to make those sorts of creative choices and you know why peel decided to go with the more optimistic ending versus the more pessimistic ending um is you know yet yet another reason why i think the, the emotional impact these films can have on audiences um, can be really, really fraught and really divisive. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned it, you've mentioned A24 a lot. Um, are there other studios like them putting out uh, horror films, interesting horror films? Uh, not as many putting out the films that I'm looking at here. I mean, Bloomhouse has been putting out a lot of interesting horror films, lots of, of really influential horror films over the last 10 years. So, they really helped to get the, the found footage cycle off the ground. They helped to do a lot of the paranormal themed films that have been so popular over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have the Conjuring franchise. They have the Purge movies. You know, they they have been doing a lot of interesting stuff with with more sort of supernatural things, but then also social commentary as well. Mm -hmm. But a lot of their films are not necessarily the same ones that I'm talking about in this post-horror book. There are a few exceptions, though. Get Out is one. Um, and that, I think, is because Get Out is a little more stylistically um, attuned to the Hollywood style. Um, it's it's a, not as much of a departure as, uh, stylistically speaking, as, you know, some of the stuff that, that A24 puts out, for example. Um, so, you know, Get Out was a little more accessible in that regard, um, which is probably one of the reasons why of probably all of the post-horror films, it was the one that had the, the biggest concurrence between the critical reception and the popular reception. Most people yeah. really loved it and thought it was an important and, and, and you know, interesting film. Mm -hmm. But the A24 ones seem to be much more willing to be divisive and to, to mm -hmm. be made really for the art house fans, despite the fact that they're managing to get their films shown in multiplexes and therefore getting a, a broader audience who might not necessarily know what they're getting into if they're you know watching the film or watching the trailer and simply see the a24 logo come up um but other than that the trailer is making it seem as if it's a much more generic film hmm. so what uh, what do you hope this book will do for readers well i hope this book will provide a useful way in to talking about these films hmm. because there's been so much discussion about the films and so many of these little critical versus fan versus popular debates about the merits of the individual films and the the various efforts to label the films as something that I'm hoping this book will be a useful way to sort of like step back and say, okay, 
here's the longer history of the horror genre. Here's where these films fit as far as they're not necessarily doing anything brand new. There have always been these sort of art house, minimalistic uh, horror films, but we've had this concentrated cluster of them coming out over the last couple of years that have gotten a lot more mainstream uh, exposure, mm-hmm. hence the fact that there's been all of this discussion around them. And so really I'm trying to, to provide readers with some way in to understanding the critical debates around them, uh, the style of the films, and then also some of the, the recurring themes. Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly don't pretend that this book is is exhaustive. I mean, these movies are they're dense, they're complex, you know, this book is certainly not intended to be in any way the final word on any of these films, especially since, you know, the cycle is still ongoing as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you working on currently? Uh, currently, I'm doing a book that's a little bit of a departure. It's a history of the Mortal Kombat video game franchise. Uh. And so that should be out either late this year or early next year. Hmm. And it's basically a little short book. Uh, mostly focused on the years 1992 through 95. So oh. basically the moment when the first three games came out and became really controversial, mm-hmm. uh, when there were all the congressional hearings around video game violence, when, uh-huh. you know, they were sort of marking this transition from games in the coin-op arcade to games that could be reproduced on uh, 16-bit home systems like the Sega Genesis, mm-hmm. and just kind of looking at, at what went on with that whole that whole moment in time. Mm-hmm. And now we have Grand Theft Auto Five or whatever it's on now. Where <laughs> if you want to talk about violence in video games, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, everything that's out there now has completely outpaced anything that Mortal Kombat had done yeah. back then. Even including in the most recent Mortal Kombat games, of which there was one that came out just you know the latest one a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so where can people find you online? Do you have um, social media or website to follow your thoughts or updates? Uh, I have a website. It's just david-church.com. Mm-hmm. And that's just my personal website. Okay. And other than that, you can also find some of my work at academia.edu mm-hmm. if you search for my name. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you should be able to find me there. Okay. And that's David Church, the standard spelling yeah, for any, yeah. for listeners. Yeah. Um, all right. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? Uh not that I can think of offhand. I mean, the, the book itself is, is really expensive right now just because it's only out in hardback. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be a, a less expensive paperback edition coming out in early of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, people might be able to, to find the book through their libraries if they have a university library or just a local library near them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or also the, the ebook version you can find through JSTOR and Project News and some of those databases. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good. Well, um, thank you for speaking with me. No, thanks again for having me. Thanks. In the next episode, I speak with well-known science fiction author Andy Weir about his new novel, Space Dock the Subscribe Button, to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, Sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org 
and follow me at War Scholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez War Scholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.